Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Craig Couch, and every week it's my job to interview top performers and unlock the secrets of their success so that you and I can apply some of their thought patterns, daily rituals, and strategies to our own missions. So this week's guest is Lee Long. Lee and I have been working together for many years, and I count him as one of my key members, one of the key members of my circle of excellence. He has helped me revolutionize my marriage and my ability to grow and scale my business. Uh, With over 20 years of clinical experience, Lee has worked with many adults, couples, adolescents, and families. His experiences range from working with adolescents in juvenile detention programs, counseling director of a residential treatment program, psychiatric hospitals, and private practices. Uh, Lee works with individuals who deal with addictions, mental health issues, relational struggles within the family, and more. Uh, He helps families reestablish relationships and married couples rekindle their love and commitment. And I will say I am one of those. (laughs) Lee is a licensed professional counselor and supervisor in the state of Texas. He's certified in cognitive behavioral analysis systems of psychotherapy and uh, an evidence-based approach developed by Dr. James McCullough um, to treat chronic depression. He is also intensively trained in dialectical behavior therapy. Lee is currently completing his doctorate in counseling, which he will be Dr. Lee Long soon, uh, with an emphasis in traumatology. His dissertation involves cognitive behavioral analysis systems of psychotherapy and why it's effective. Uh, He's an avid runner, quite the athlete. He's run eight, count them, eight marathons and a couple of ultra marathons as well. And uh, I learned recently that you actually did a 50K on a Woodway treadmill. (laughs) Lee, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here with you. Yeah. So a 50K is like 30 miles. And I'm just wondering why in the world you would do that on a treadmill? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I was training for a 50 mile uh, run and it was snowing outside. And so I didn't want to get wet. Well, and that I, makes sense, right? Yeah, makes sense. I mean, it's that's what you do. You go indoors. And I, I, uh, I wondered when you told me it was a Woodway. I wondered. I'm like, well, why did he tell me it was a Woodway? And I looked up the Woodway treadmill. That thing is legit. Like it. It looks like it. It's. I think it was like eleven thousand dollars, and just looked like you could run without hurting your knees. Yeah, it's a self-propelled. Like you have to do all the work. That's why I put it on there because they say it's 30% more difficult being on a woodway. And I'm here to attest it is 30% more difficult to be on a woodway treadmill. But easier on your joints, yes? Easier on your joints, yeah. And and when it's snowing outside and when you're a big baby, um, <laughs> it's easier to do that on the, on the treadmill. <laughs> Well, we have a bunch to cover today, um, but before we dive into emotional intelligence and therapy, I'd like to get a better understanding of the business side of therapy. Um, your company, Restoration Counseling, um, is celebrating its 16th year in business this month. That's You've right. You've got four locations and 24 therapists on the team. 
I'm just curious, where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from, you think? That's a great question. Um, my older brother and all of my brothers-in-law were in bus- are, are in business, it, you know, they in real estate and, and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm significantly younger than all of my siblings. Uh, my oldest sibling is 25 years older than me. And my closest sibling is 10 years older than me. All same mom and dad. My parents just didn't know where babies came from. Um, <laughs> but uh, just growing up around, like hearing all the things that they're up to, um, it was always intriguing to me. So that's, I think that's where the entrepreneurial spirit comes from. And if you're an Enneagram fam, fan, um, I am a seven. And so it's always the adventure. Always the next thing. Well, always the next adventure. Well, so what were, what were some of the, um, deciding factors? So you, you became a therapist, but then there was this point where you had to start asking other therapists to operate on your platform. What was the, what was that transition like? So, I think if you if if we back up a little bit, I, I becoming a therapist was sort of a second career for me. My first career was really in business, and I um, I I was kind of scared of being a therapist, to be real candid, because I was really a, I had seen I had witnessed a, a, a passively witnessed a person jumping off of a bridge, and that was really devastating to see. And it was very devastating to see the the uh, ambulance, uh, the the paramedic and the police officer dealing with that. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be a therapist because I never, ever, ever want to feel the pain that they're experiencing. So I went into the business world and I thought, oh, I'll use psychology in that way. And so, you know, through a series of really, really cool events, I come back into the, the therapy world. And my vision for this is that, you know, isolation is a very ugly, dark, um, non-growing place. And I can remember being in private practice by myself because I started restoration alone and thinking, gosh, this is just really dark to do this alone, to carry all of this by myself. And it's, you know, as, as you, as you encounter other really talented individuals, you think, gosh, would you be fun to run with? You know, and I mean that figuratively speaking. And so as, as you would, as you learn, yeah, this person would be really fun to run with and They have a skill, you know, they have little, little skills that I don't have. And it'd be fun to have them on a team together. And next thing you know, you're building a, a group of people that could service a wide variety of needs. And so that's how we've, that's how we've selected who we bring on is do they fit a niche that hasn't been fit yet? Or do they bring something unique to the team that rounds us out and makes us more um, power? Powerful is not the best word, but more um, effective. Wow. That's a great way of, of putting it. So you're basically evaluating the resources that you currently have, looking for the blind spots and then filling them with other talent, which I think is a, is a really good approach and growing your business. So Thanks. I'm curious about one thing because, because the, 
you know, because I've been in your office before and there's lots of doors and, you know, everybody's got their own space to do their therapeutic work. Um, I'm curious to how you keep, because I, I think there's lots of different um, approaches to therapy. Mm-hmm. And the people that you bring on, I would imagine, and just help me think through this, I would imagine it'd be hard to um, to really confirm that uh, the other therapists are aligned with the 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 method that restoration as a group um, should be doing because you you in many cases you can't see the work happen because you're not there. Right. What what are what are some ways that you ensure uh, good quality therapy? That's a great question. Um, I first of all we have a we are a bit of a training organization um, and we put all of our new therapists through uh, every week. They get three hours, three solid hours of supervision on top of being overseen by um, uh, our executive staff. And so we really pour into them extensively. Um, And we have a really extensive interview process. Um, the interview process is you, 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 you meet with about six people. We all act in unison. Um, and there's, you know, I think to the way people, A, the way they treat you, you're going to be able to tell how they're going to treat other people. Um, B, we set them through sort of a, um, a, a process, if you will, of, of, um, interacting with various members of staff that helps us get a feel for how they're going to do treatment. We also, we also kind of put them through the paces of, especially in what we call our postgraduate Academy. We can't call it the PGA because that's already been, that's already been taken by somebody else. (laughs) But what, what we call internally the PGA, um, which is the postgraduate Academy uh, we do a lot of, of work in there where we can really see what kind of uh, therapist they're going to be. So we have, we have those checks and balances in place. That's a great question. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool way to do it. And so I'd love to, to, to dive in a little bit deeper on the interview process. So if they're interacting with six people, is it a real structured system where the interview process is, is, with all six at once, or is it two at a time? How do you, how do you decide uh, how to structure that? And what's the great question. We've gone through a lot of different iterations of that. And what we have found to be the most effective is we do it two by two Um, because you can have someone observing while the other one is asking the questions and then you shift roles and that other person observes while they're asking the questions. And so it's really a, it's really a neat little, uh, little, uh, yeah. interact that, that you get to see it all, all line out. And then we come together and we really powwow about what did you see and what were the strengths and what were the weaknesses and, you know, what, what would this look like? And I mean, there's even been some candidates that have been just amazing candidates, but there's not the, they wouldn't fit. Uh, the 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 niche that we have at the time, right? In other words, if the blinds, if you've got too much redundancy, it's like golly, you'd be awesome. But we've got 
to others that are very similar in their abilities and, and uh, talents. So, okay. Well, uh, one thing that, that fascinates me about this, I guess you could call it the humanities service industry. Is that, yeah. is that the way to describe it? Um, sure. Yeah. So how, most of the people that come into your industry, um, I would guess this is an assumption, but I would guess that they're really mercy, merciful type people, very kind hearted, really want to help. Um, and my guess, this is just my guess, but my guess is they struggle charging for their time um, because it feels like a conflict. In other words, you don't want to be the therapist that's more interested in money than you are helping somebody. And I'm sure there's uh, all kinds of language that surrounds that out in the world. How do you uh, how do you overcome that line of thinking or am I am I off base totally? No, you're not off base totally. Um, I, I think I think a lot of people in our industry uh, undervalue themselves often. Um, I, I mean, I can remember early on um, finishing up with a case and the, the father of the son I was treating was a, a very, very uh, uh, wise businessman. And he said, okay, now that we're, now that we're graduating, you're way undervaluing yourself and you need to charge more. <laughs> Thanks for um, the discount, bro, but you need to charge more. <laughs> that's, right. That, that's Which, from the heart funny. of a real businessman right there to wait till the end <laughs> to tell you the news. <laughs> that's awesome. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, I think the way that at least the way we walk with people to, to sort that out is to realize that, while it's common to us, it is not common to everyone. And, you know, shouldering a burden um, is just that. It is shouldering a burden and it does offer value. And that if you undervalue yourself, what kind of a message are you sending to the person that you're walking alongside as well? So that valuing you is important in um, relationship to other people. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. And, I, you know, Jennifer with um, my wife, Jennifer, with uh, with SoberSys, um, oftentimes, you know, she's in the in the virtual world. You know, she's got some online programs that she charges for and she gets some pretty intense blowback, man, that that this uh, that quote recovery work should be free and all this stuff. You're just after the right. the mighty dollar and just really some mean shaming comments. And uh, what what we found is that people that pay actually pay attention. Um, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> and so yeah, I just uh, I've been curious about. This. So you've your business, your yours and mine, um, my, my uh, real estate brokerage is kind of like, it's a platform style business, much like yours. I mean, we've got a brokerage with, uh, with real estate agents. There's a hundred of them and they all have a license, just like all of your therapists have their own license. Um, are there any, so if you think of your business as a platform for other therapists to operate in, like I think of my business as a platform for realtors to operate in, are there any particular warnings that you would give someone who's starting their own professional platform-based practice? I, I I think the biggest warning that I would give or or heads up, if you will, 
is it's along the same lines as what we're talking about with young therapists is don't undervalue yourself. Offering a platform is, is truly a gift to people and to really recognize that what you're offering is of great value. Because I think, I think at times people who offer a platform just look at it and get, can look at it and say, oh, it's just a platform. That's not that big of a deal. But it really does come at a great cost and a great uh, risk to you, the person offering it. And not everybody's going to see that risk. Not everybody's going to see that cost. And the, the, some costs and some risks, um, you, may, you, you may never, ever get the recognition that you, quite frankly, deserve for that. Because you're going to be the one on a Sunday afternoon dealing with fill in the blank with whatever it is that, that, that having that platform takes from you, you know, that that's going to, and it will take from you. But in the end, if you, if you look at what you're offering to people, I mean, you know, you are offering this brokerage for people to do a, a, a phenomenal service for people, which is to, to, provide housing, to provide shelter, to provide one of the base needs of humanity to others. And that's significant. Yeah. And I think that as a business owner, owning that and saying, this isn't just about offering this to realtors. This is offering a service that provides a base need to humanity. I mean, that's special. Yes, it is. Well, and you, you, so back to your thought about Sunday afternoon, uh, and, and, you know, the platform taking from you, what kind of taking is that? What do you mean? Well, if, if, if your business is making Uh a withdrawal, and it's costing, it's costing something. I guess I'm wanting to understand from you more of what that cost is and what that is taking from you. In it's time, it's energy. It's, I mean, there's times where it's time away from my family. Um, there's times where it's, um, you know, I'd rather be sitting on the sofa with my wife and kids watching the Rangers game but I'm out dealing with the fact that a sofa that we needed for a new therapist office came in and it it came in on a Sunday, not a Saturday. And I'm up here offloading it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's it's the thing, right? It's, it's the cost. It's the price of pay of, of, of having the platform, which is, 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 can be undervalued, right? Um, the, the people on the platform may not know, um, you know, what it, what it takes from the guy that built it. Um, so I've just, just wanted you to flesh that out. So my, um, my financial mentor, Joe Taylor, um, who, uh, I interviewed back on episode nine says that he, um, he always felt like he was a turtle on a fence post, <laughs> uh, which, you know, makes it obvious that he didn't get there on his own. Um, so with that in mind, who, is Jim McCullough to you? Jim McCullough, uh, man, who is Jim McCullough? First of all, I love that man. He, uh, he is my mentor. He is a, an 83 year old. Um, just he's a, he's a genius. 
Um, he's the guy who wrote uh, CBASP or Cognitive Behavioral Analysis Systems of Psychotherapy. Um, he, he started that treatment modality in the 70s and um, he has tirelessly worked to provide treatment for people who are chronically depressed, who have been basically written off by our system as um, treatment resistant, as they can't ever be helped, as in let's just put them on medicine and, you know, drug them up and cast them aside. Um, he's tirelessly in effort, worked on, on, on CBASP and making that something that is uh, now become the gold standard for, um, for, for treatment for chronically depressed people. Well, give me a cliff notes, if you would, on what cognitive behavioral analysis systems of psychotherapy actually is. So, so CBASP is a learning acquisition model. And it's so, so what does that mean? It means that, um, it, and, and what's, what's great is Jim wrote a book very recently and it was his memoirs. Why, and, and it's, um, dovetailed together with the, the best explanation that I've seen him write of what CBASP is. And, and in that it's learning acquisition is, is basically you're, you're teaching them to, as he says, you're teaching them to become human. Mm. Now that might sound harsh, but what he describes as a person himself who has dealt with chronic depression is that they are like pre-operational children and pre-operational children is like six and under. And so they don't understand that they have an effect on their environment. They don't understand that their environment has an effect on them. They feel like they kind of live behind a wall, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's Groundhog's Day. Nothing can affect them. And SPASP teaches them assertiveness skills. Um, it teaches them how to differentiate because a lot of times his hypothesis is that um, people who struggle with chronic depression have had a malevolent caregiver somewhere along the way where they've been, they've experienced some kind of a trauma or, or, or some negative, some negativity in their childhood. And that the, they project that nev- negativity onto everybody that they encounter and think, well, you're going to be just like my dad was, or you're going to be just like my mom was, or, you know, whomever it was. And he has a way of, of differentiating the malevolent caregiver from the rest of the world. And, and I'm going to tell you, Craig, what's been super fascinating in this was I treated chronic depression for a number of before I knew about CBASP and before I met Jim. We call him Big Jim. So before I met Big Jim, and it would take two hours a week, three years. I mean, then that's cost prohibitive for most people. And when I met Jim, Big Jim, what I realized was he had a process that got this accomplished so much more quickly. And what's so amazing is, is they start to realize the world isn't going to treat me the way that I fear that it is. And therefore they start opening up and realizing, Hey, I have choice in the world. Even though my choices might be really crummy, I still have choices. And it's really neat to watch a person emerge. And it's almost like they take a breath for the first time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful process. Well, and you, you use the word differentiation 
Um, and I guess that means separating. Um, and so if you're, if you're going through the process, uh, of this sea bass, um, I'm guessing that you're, you're learning that you're, the world doesn't necessarily happen to you. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. It's that you have an effect on the world. And, and that's very new for these, this type of person because they think, you know, they're just sort of, um, you know, hunkered down, if you will, behind what they think is a shield. And they're just saying, okay, the world is just happening to me. And then they emerge and realize, wait a minute, I actually have an effect on my environment. Oh, it's so interesting. And I, I, I wonder if you could give some insight, um, to, cause I've, I've never really personally, um, dealt with, um, depression. Um, and I've, because I've never dealt with it, um, it makes it harder for me to empathize with someone who does. Um, because you know, I, I naturally have more of a Pollyanna view of the world and it's like, don't worry, be happy. You know, Bobby McFerrin comes up in my mind. And so it makes it really difficult for me to empathize with somebody who struggles with depression. And so I guess what I'm asking you is, can you give, can we kind of zoom in on depression itself and kind of give me, give me a little bit of an idea of what it's like um, to be depressed and chronically depressed? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the, the chronically depressed individual looks at life very globalized. If they stub their toe, the whole world is terrible. Um, they, they don't do a good job of, of, of compart- compartmentalizing is probably not the best word, but I always say putting things in silos. You know, like oh, I stubbed my toe. That was a, not a good moment. But it's, oh my gosh, my day is terrible. One thing happened. Um, everything feels like it's happening to me. I have no sense of agency or no sense of self. Life is just coming at me like, like a fire hydrant and, and, and I have zero control. I just feel like I'm tied to the end of somebody's muffler. Mm. And I'm, I'm at the whim of wherever they're going to go and where they're going to turn. It's literally, it, it, a lot of people describe it as like, I'm riding a bull that I have no control over. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty miserable place for people to be. And they tend to power down and to avoid. And I mean, if, think about it. If you felt like life was like riding a bull, I mean, I, I might want to power down and avoid as well. Yeah, it sounds um, it sounds uh, tiring. Yes, that's a great word for it. It sounds tiring, and it sounds also sounds hopeless. Very hopeless. They feel very helpless. They feel like there's, and that's where that's why a lot of them will will um, sort of. Uh, dip into this world of suicidality and suicidal thinking. And uh, because if, if, if I'm, if I'm hopeless in the world is hopeless and I'm helpless, there's, there's nothing that can be done for me. Then what's the point of living? Hmm. What would you say the best way 
um, to come alongside someone that has that's that's in this state of depression. What what is the I guess what's the what's a good way to do it, and then tell me what a really bad way of coming alongside somebody that's struggling with depression. I think I think the best way of coming alongside of anybody, but but specifically with depression, is to empathize with them. Um, empathy is definitely something where you try to put yourself in their shoes and you say, "I I, I see you, and I see what you're struggling with." I think the way that we don't want to go about it is that which uh, Brene Brown talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy, you know, sympathy just kind of dips their head in and says, Oh yeah, I see it's bad for you. Like, okay, got it. You know, where you don't put yourself in their shoes, you just observe them and you back away. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of times what happens when people do that is, Oh, okay. But, but look, let's, let me convince you that life isn't that bad. Well, the minute that you start convincing somebody that life isn't that bad, they're going to double down on how bad it really is. So that, that approach, I think, I think it embeds people further in their sadness and sorrow and hopeless and helplessness than to say, I see you. And I see that you're in a spot where you feel like you are never going to come out of it. And guess what? And this is something fun for, for guys like you and me is we don't have to fix it because trying to fix it is the absolute wrong thing to do. Especially, especially as a, as a friend and a non-professional, it's just be with them. Yeah. It's great advice really is because the, the first move for, uh, for someone that's never been there is to fix that crap. Like you got to fix that. I mean, come on. Yeah. Let's, you got to pull it up and and start thinking positive you know <laughs> it's like right. it's about the worst thing you can do well this um this this covid-19 panic uh that we're experiencing right now has caused all sorts of things to happen and is gravely affecting mental health in our country uh and i actually read the other day that antidepressants are expected to be up by 100% in 2020 uh to yeah. twenty-eight billion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of Zoloft and Prozac uh, and Lexapro. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Um, what What are your comments on that? And and also like to you you mentioned suicide earlier, and I'd like you to comment on 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 the antidepressant piece, but then also and then maybe just kind of transition into uh, just how suicide rates are also spiking. Yeah, you know. I have a, I have a mixed um, feeling about the antidepressants being so like uh, on the incline on the increase. What I hope is, is that means that people are getting help for what they need help for. Um, so, so in that part, I'm, I'm glad. Um, but the, but the other part of that is, you know, I, I hope that the, the other part of that is, we are in a dark time, you know, people, people are being, are, are isolating. And, and I understand they're wanting to try to stay healthy. They're wanting to not expose people. And, and I get that. The hard part is, is we weren't, we weren't created for isolation. 
we were created for intimacy and for fellowship, for being together with other people, for just, I mean, just mixing it up and having a good time and a good laugh and sometimes at other people's expense, sometimes not, but we, we were created to be together. And I really think in this time, I mean, I, it, we're, we're seeing, unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in depression. We're seeing an increase in anxiety. I mean, the CDC just published a stat that the age group of 18 to 24 in the last 30 days, 25% of that age group has seriously contemplated suicide and suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages. Now this is, this is staggering to me, ages 10 to 40. It's the second leading cause of death first or second only to uh, accident. But unfortunately, you know, with all this isolation and quite frankly, I think, you know, prior to COVID, I think there was this isolation of media where we feel like we're connected, but in truth, we really, really, you know, we're, we're connected with other people's stories, but that's just the, the best parts of what they want you to see. They've rehearsed that. I mean, how many selfies does a person take before they post it on Instagram? I mean, <laughs> hundreds, right? I mean, they're not, they're not, uh, it's not the first one that you get. And you look at that and you think, oh, well, I'm connected to so-and-so because I, I see you're really not. And I think that's what we're missing is that we're not connecting to one another. That's, well, that validates, Lee, I mean, it validates quite a bit of what's kind of been in our generation's mind about, about social media uh, and it not being real connection because I remember taking my phone, I mean, uh, my, my daughter's phone from her when she was 14 or 15 years old and the reaction from, uh, you know, she would, if she did something wrong and it was a consequence of losing her phone, it was, it was as if I was taking away her connection. Like it was like I was cutting off an appendage. I, I was, I was always shocked at the level of, of, just blowback from, from that. Um, and so it, as much as it isn't real connection, it sure must feel like it is. Absolutely. And you think about how many kids now, how, how later and later they are in getting their driver's license. I mean, I remember when I was 16, I, I, I might have slept in a sleeping bag right? To be the first person there to get my driver's <laughs> license, to get that test done so that I could go cruising around with my buddies, right? Now kids aren't getting their driver's license until they're 20. And you think, well, why? Is it because they're anxious? No, because what's the big campaign? Don't text and drive, right? And so driving to them is a very disconnecting thing because the way that they stay connected is through, through social media. Oh, well, I, I've never made that connection. <laughs> Don't text and drive. It's like, well, I think I'll just pass on the driving part. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because now you're telling me I can't be with my buddies because they don't talk anymore to each other. And they say, how often do you, do you stumble on a group of kids and they're all like looking down at their phone and you're standing there and you're like, I mean, 
quite frankly, the, <laughs> the old man in me wants to go take up all their phones and go look at each other, talk to each other. That would be an old man move for sure. It would be an old <laughs> I don't think that would go off very well. Well, no. I mean, Katie Joe, my daughter, she didn't get her license until she was, I mean, we had to make her go get it. We're like, look, you need to start taking your brother to school because this is ridiculous uh, because she didn't feel the need to drive. Uh, but what a fascinating connection. I do want to go back to something. We kind of got off on a tangent a little bit there, my fault. But I want to go back to this statistic about these incredible 25%. I think this, correct me if I'm wrong, you said 25% of, of 10 to 40. Or what, what was the 25% of the 18 to 24-year-olds okay. have contemplated suicide in the last 30 days. Okay. Thank you. That's incredible. That is that is so shocking to me. Um, I would have never guessed that that would be the case. And your, your theory um, is, is that it's about isolation. Is there any, is that right? Am I right with that? Okay. So, if it's isolation, is there anything else that you think is, is pouring gas on those thoughts? I mean, I mean, we could, yes, ish. I mean, we could go down the road of looking at the fact that, you know, all of the, the side effects of the psychotropic drugs have been taken away. The sexual side effects have been taken away and more people with, mixed genetics, if you will, or procreating, but I don't, I mean, that's, that's a theory that's being postulated out there in our, in our world. And is that accurate? I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that the, the most obvious and most central to all of it is the fact that we are moving to a more and more and more and more isolated society. Yes, that's, that's the truth. I mean, in my own company, uh, you know, in this, in this COVID window, I'm, I mean, I'm disconnected. I mean, at first it was kind of cool. Um, and now I'm like, gosh, you know, I miss my people. Um, this right. is not, this is not, I don't really, I don't really like this as much. <laughs> I mean, at first glance, it was like, oh, this is so much more convenient. You know, I can, I can have our leadership meeting in my boxers and this is cool. <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm, I'm unable to really read people and feel the nuance of the room, feel all the energy, whether it be positive or negative. Um, and that also feels more efficient, right? Because I'm not having to deal with multiple inputs. It's a two-dimensional screen, which right. allows me more bandwidth to think about what I want to think about instead of what's really going on. Um, and so, yeah, I think, uh, I think it is damaging, um, this isolating thing that we're going through and it's, it's going to teach us a lot. I think we'll look back at this window of time and, and, um, and look as, at the statistics and the numbers and the science behind all what happened and, and really learn some pretty cool things. Yeah. Well, one thing that I hope we learn is that the, there's an inverse relationship from, from intimacy to efficiency. And we've got to find the sweet spot because you're right. We do get more efficient when we're isolated, but our intimacy levels, like you said, decline. And so it is really, especially as a, you know, I mean, as I think about it as a business owner, it's, it's how do I make sure that my team, we still have, yes, I want us to be efficient, 
but I don't want to exclude intimacy or togetherness from that from that sense of, of efficiency. Yes, yes. And I've learned some valuable lessons uh, as it relates to marriage that that decoupling or just that 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 tension between efficiency and intimacy. (laughs) I've learned some really tough lessons on that for sure. Um, So I think um, I think I want to kind of that'd be a great it's a great segue to begin sort of discussing getting a little bit more personal for me and my experience, um, in therapy. Um, but first I'd like to ask you what, when people think about therapy, it has on the street from my point of view, this is just my opinion. It has a stigma, um, about it. Like as if, if you're going to therapy, there's something really wrong with you. Um, and, and if you, especially if you say you're going to marriage counseling, you know, people would look at you like you had something growing out of your head, like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Is it all falling apart? I guess uh, my question I want to start out with as it relates to therapy, when is a good time for someone to choose therapy? That is such a great question because there is a statistic and I, I don't remember the exact uh, percentage but it's in the 60% range that marriages that go to marital therapy end in divorce. And I think, you know, when you, when you really, when you really dig into that, that stat, what you find is that most people wait too long where, where things have already shattered. Now, if something's cracked, it's easier to put it back together than if something is completely shattered. And so I think that that's a, that's a phenomenal question in the sense that I, I think when there is a, a moderate pain point, that's when I think it's appropriate to go. When you're, you find yourself looping over something over and over and over again, and it's starting to become a little more painful to discuss each time. It's before the resentment, before the anger, before the, as I had somebody earlier this week, look at me and say, I hate my spouse and I don't want to hate my spouse anymore. I'm like, man, I wish they would have come when they really disliked their spouse. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little bit earlier on the spectrum. Just a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think the, do you believe that it could be the stigma that keeps people in the waiting pattern or is it the fear of what they're going to find out? Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's like, why, why don't we want to go to the doctor? It's like, we probably don't want to hear what he or she has to say. And it's that I'm, I'm really busy and I don't, I don't do I, do I see the value yet? Right. It's the, and I mean, I, you know, as an endurance athlete, I look at that and I go, yeah, it's like if I wait on a, when I was on that treadmill and if I waited until I got hungry on that treadmill to fuel, then I was already behind and I would not be able to catch up. And I did that in my first marathon where I waited until the 13th mile to take any gel. Well, I never caught up and it was the most miserable experience of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. That's the same thing when it comes to, you know, why don't we step in is I, I don't, I don't think we see, I don't think we see the need yet. And we wait, we wait until perhaps it's a little, a little late. Well, um, 
yeah, I guess I guess I can I can really uh, I can really validate that with personal story. Um, you know, Jennifer and I, we were in the state where we uh, loved each other, right? We were in it to win it, and we didn't like each other. Um, I didn't. I, I think she probably hated me sometimes. <laughs> but mostly she just simply didn't like me that much. And I didn't like her either. And what we were noticing is exactly what you described where there was a cycle and a pattern that involved our kids and her connection with the kids, my connection with the kids. And just th- this, this perfect storm was creating this pattern that was a loop and the way you described it was so perfect because the loop began to be more painful. Right. Every rotation of that loop became more, more and more painful. And I thought, you know, this is, this is, this, it's, we got to do something here. Cause if we're operating from the scope of, Hey, we're in this to win it. We want to stay married. Uh, and this really sucks and I hate it. Um, we got to go get some help. Um, and we, we started out, we went to church, we went to church. We're like, well, maybe the church can help us. And, and, uh, that was not the case. Um, the church, uh, and nothing against the church because the church can be very helpful, but it was like, it was sort of like uh, I was given a bunch of scripture to meditate on and right. I needed practical help. Like, and, right. and I'm not saying that the Bible is not practical help, uh, it just didn't seem to resonate on Monday morning. Um, and I needed, I needed some more tactical help and I needed direct input. Um, and that's what I found I got from you was direct input over time. Um, and so I, I want to give you permission, um, Lee in front of my audience. This is a little risky for me, um, to walk me through what you were seeing in me and what part I was playing in the rocky road in our marriage um, and what part, what parts I was missing. Cause it was, I knew when I, we would have our sessions with you, I knew that I was missing something, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it. Um, and I'm just curious, what was it like being on your end now that we've in a way graduated <laughs> from, right. from the yeah. Institute of Restoration <laughs> Counseling. Um, I'd like to go back and sort of deconstruct a little bit of that from your point of view. I think probably the thing that we all miss is we tend to focus on the other person. We want them to stop doing what they're doing and we want them to bend or mold toward us. Mm. And that that's not going to usually happen. And if it does happen, it's not the healthiest thing in the world. And I think the thing that where, I mean, to be, to be really candid with your permission is (laughs) I think that, (laughs) I think that it's, when you begin to see you more and you begin to see your contribution, you begin to focus on you and not Jen, then it's like all of a sudden you can change. Not who you are, 
but how you go about what you do. And it's interesting because I think people get so nervous that if they focus on themselves, that somehow they're going to lose their position or lose a sense of power. What's fascinating is they actually become more in control and even more powerful, for lack of a better word, because they're in control of them. And they recognize what they're bringing to the table which I think that as you began to recognize your stimulus value in your marriage or what effect that you were having on that loop, you then could take control of what you had control of and you could do your part in that partnership to shift the, the, uh, to shift the loop, to shift that dynamic. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I felt it like it's, it's so close to me that it's hard to, it's, it's hard to put it to words like you did. And I, I appreciate that. And I, that's really, you know, my hard driving, fast moving, you know, super type A persona uh, is, doesn't want to slow down to, mm-hmm. to do that kind of work. Um, I'd rather just, it would just be so much easier if she just change, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? It would just be so much easier if she would change. And so it is a little, it was a little unnerving, um, starting to look myself in the mirror. Um, and in the therapy situation is that you, the good thing that you did, um, that I thought was so great is, is that you, didn't hold a mirror straight up to my face, right in my nose. But instead, you kind of let me peek at the mirror and then you would watch me respond to the mirror and then you would hide the mirror. And you gave me myself in doses because it was too painful to look at all at once. And one of the things that surprised me in my experience with restoration is that it just took freaking forever. Yeah. Like it just took a long time. It took a long time for me to to see this. And it took the spaced repetition mm-hmm. of a few years of therapy, me coming by myself, me coming with Jen, Jen coming by herself and teasing out these little things um, has become incredibly valuable because yeah. what you did was instead of giving us tactics, you gave us timeless tools in our tool belt to then use when the heat gets turned up. Because the heat still gets freaking turned up at my house, in case you didn't know. I mean, it's still, <laughs> it still gets pretty, pretty, uh, pretty amazingly heated um, just with disagreement um, and just my own pride and all these things, you know, I've got a big, I've got 99 problems. I mean, I, I can't keep track of all of them, but, but the good thing is, is that now because of the work, um, and this learning myself and getting to know myself, I now have these tools to pull out to help Jennifer and I, and she does too, to help us recover. Right. Yeah. Thank, thank you for that. And thank you for saying it that way. Um, that actually means a lot to me to hear you say that, um, because that means we hit the mark. Um, 
the reason why it, I mean, you know, therapy can be quick. Um, but like you said, like we can, I mean, I can hand you a lot of tools and say, good luck. It depends on how hard headed you are. I'm, uh-huh. I'm, 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 well, I mean, <laughs> sorry, fair, go, ahead, fair, go ahead, finish your thought. But, but, but I, I think that one of the things that is meaningful to me is that life operates in principles and it, from, from my perspective and we can hand a lot of principles over, but until you know how those principles, what they mean on a granular level to you. And that's why, you know, like you saying that we first we went to the church and the church, it wasn't really helpful. And again, you, like, like you said, it's not at all bagging on the church. The church does a wonderful job. And the church often meets people in a real common fairway. Right. And when yes. you're rough, you are, what, what club are you going to use? Well, it depends. It depends on the rough. It depends on, you know, how deep I'm in, where am I trying to get my ball? And there's very specific things that come out of principle that have to be specified. Yes. And it's not about, you know, a caddy, you don't want your caddy always telling you what to do. You want, you know, it's like, it's like a Sherpa. A Sherpa doesn't put the, put the, the climber on their back and, and take them up to the peak of, of, of Everest. The Sherpa just points out the way and the climber is the one who takes the steps, right? And that's why I think it does take a while because it's at, it's at a granular level and it's learning. I want you to be able to go up to Everest a hundred times over because like you said, life is still going to throw you curveballs you're still going to fight. Fighting is never going to go away. It's just now, how do I handle it? How do I recover? Yeah. That recovery time we've learned um, over the years that, and, and just, you know, the recovery time from the blow up, right. To, to reconnecting um, and trying to maintain that connection is much shorter. Now that we have the dang tools, like we've got the tools to know how to fight fair we also have learned how to regulate our emotions, uh, not to stuff them, but to regulate them and identify them and just say, you know, Jennifer, I'm super pissed off right now. I need, I need to talk about this in about an hour, you know, is a much more productive approach than just blowing up on her as I did before. Um, and so it's those little things they, that, that you taught me that really, um, really has helped me in my business as well. <laughs> believe it or not um because it was not a journey it was not a journey on marriage it was but it was it was more of a journey um for myself like you said right. once i learned to separate it and not look at jennifer and just say if she would just change everything would be fine which was usually my mantra i mean that was that was kind of the the approach and turns out that doesn't work <laughs> at all so uh, all of our approach we all want it to be you fix you fix that person i'm good i'll wait y'all y'all do your business exactly right? i think i even said that out loud once i'm good <laughs> once you get better we'll be fine <laughs> what were you going to say? I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I, I can't confirm or deny. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, you know, in a, in a therapeutic environment, you were always really good um, 
at allowing me to trip over my own truth. Um, and you were really, you were a really good relationship Sherpa to point a direction at the same time, give me glances of the mirror so I could look myself in the mirror in, in, in proper doses. That's important because I think if you'd have shown me too much of my assholery, for example, it, it might've freaked me out and, uh, I might not have come back, but you were able to just do that, um, in little doses, which is really cool. Uh, but in that environment, um, I, I'd like to ask you, if you can, to take off your your therapy hat for a second and and give and do what what I kind of wanted you to do in the first session of therapy, which is to give me some damn advice so I can use it and go on, um, which is <laughs> not that effective. But let's do something really fun here. Um, so if you're going to give a public service announcement to men. And you can complete this sentence. Men, if men would just blank, their relationship with their wife would be much better. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> My knee-jerk reaction to that is, if we would just listen. If we would just listen and listen not to fix, listen to know. That's the part. I think that that's true for our marriages. I think that that's true for our kids. I think that's true for our subordinates. I think that's true across the board. We don't need to fix. We need to be with. And I will tell you, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years and most every woman that I have spoken to, most every wife that I've spoken to has said, if he would just hear me, if he would just know me, fill in the blank with all these wonderful things that they, that they had to say. I think that that that's, that's at the core is if, if I could learn to be empathetic with my wife, if I could learn to hear her, but hear her for the expressed purpose of knowing her better. And if I could be really candid uh, about you specifically, Craig, I would say that that was a big turning point for you is stepping back and learning Jen knowing her better and not knowing her to know, to know how to move her along, along our agenda, so to speak, but it's knowing our wives in an effort to just, I mean, to be in awe. I mean, I think about when we, when we met our wives, right? Like I just remember stepping back and looking at my wife going, I'm going to marry this woman. She had no clue. <laughs> and it took me five years to convince her but I'm going to marry this woman. Right. And it's like, we would sit and stare at them all, you know, like, Oh my gosh, you're the greatest thing. But somehow we lose that and we need to keep that desire and that sense of discovery. Never stop discovering your wife ever because she's changing and growing and, and, and moving through life and having new experiences always be exploring with and exploring her. Well said. Discovering her. And, and really, uh, you, you know, that it, it, 
this epiphany for me has has revolutionized my marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, my passion for her, my love for her has evolved back to where where it should be. And I think it's 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 a beautiful thing and and I think the the big move, you're right, it was me learning to hear and listen and understand and not try to the way you put it just nails me to the wall actually and that is my agenda because mm-hmm. my hard driving attitude is very problematic because I have a, I have an agenda and if you're in the way of my agenda it's a big problem uh, and that is the wake I put off a lot uh, with the people I love dearly and so that uh, I'm thankful for that yeah yeah, it uh, changed my life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for trusting me. This is my show, damn it. I shouldn't be crying on my own show. <laughs> We're going to edit that crap out. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. Okay. So, all right. PSA to women. If women would just blank their relationship with their husband would be much better. You know, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's interesting cause it's a, it's a, it's a completely different approach in my opinion. But if, if, if a man believes that he is in, important and, and seen as competent um, as a whole, I, I think that, you know, it's the whole feeling respected mm. and desired. Mm. And I think that as, as women can look at, at there is a, there's kind of a, a movement. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but where men are kind of seen as adult children. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be seen as a child. I, I want to be seen as, as, a, as a, a warrior, as a guy who's going to do battle, as a guy who's, you know, doing hard things. I mean, truth be told, part of the reason why I hopped on that treadmill was to, to say that I did it, was to, to, to you know, to, I, to conquer. I can do hard things. You know, and I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. And I think having a, a wife who looks at you and says, I, I, I saw that, that hard thing you did, and I think that's awesome. And, and I really respect you and admire you, and I think you're pretty great because of it. Hmm. And I think that if, as, as women, the thing that you can offer your husband is seeing him as a grown man. Now, you may struggle with that because oftentimes – uh, you, you have to really look for those moments where we're grown men. But I think in the opportunities that you can, I think if you can see your husband as a grown man and not as an adult child, I think it, I think it offers a lot in the marriage. Yeah. I think that um, I will say that um, at least for Jennifer, and I don't know if that's, this is normal for, for, for all women, but I will say that she responded to she reacted. Um, I was the, in a way, the catalyst 
for my own desire for respect. Does that make sense? Like it, it was me learning the first PSA, right? Which is to right. listen and to hear. Once I learned that, it made it a lot easier for her. It gave her the space to respect me and right. to honor me and to be proud of all the hard work and the grind and the grit and determination and the fortitude and all the stuff it takes to run all these companies. It's just like, and then, then suddenly she's a cheerleader for me, which is actually what I always wanted. That's it. That's what I always wanted. And little did I know that I was standing in the way of that. Right. In a way, like I, I played a huge part in it, we'll say. Sure. <laughs> in our particular. We all have our contribution to those things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, man, what a, what a great, um, a great little conversation we've had. Um, so like we've talked about behind every good man, there's a good woman. Sure. Uh, and I think my wife, she's got to wonder what it's like to be married to a guy who's like you, who's so empathetic and understanding, <laughs> like a therapist would be and should be. Uh, I'm curious about what your wife would say about being married to a therapist. You know, it's funny. Um, when we were first married, somebody asked her, so does he turn it off? <laughs> Is he always <laughs> analyzing you? And uh, I, I was, I was waiting. I mean, I, I was like, oh my gosh, like everything stopped and I was waiting to hear her answer. And uh, man, there's a reason why I waited five years for this woman. I, I, I won the prize with her. Um, but, you know, her, her answer was really sweet. She said, you know, he is who he is and uh, he's not, he's not analyzing me. He, he loves me and I love him and he, he is empathetic and he does listen and that's a bonus for me. Um, but I, I think one of the things that, that she would say being married to a therapist is that there's a lot of sharing that she has to do. Um, meaning, you know, if a, if a crisis call comes in, you know, at eight o'clock at night and I've had a long day and I've just kind of, I've just gotten in and I've got to go handle that that she's like, I'm, I'm glad to know that you're handling it. And I'm glad to know that that person's getting help. And at the same time, it's sad for me because that's a piece of you that I don't get for that moment. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's probably what she, what she would say, what she would say at this point, that there's times where it's a bonus because our fights, uh, I mean, I, look, I, I'm just glad that she read all the books too, because mm-hmm. There's times where we will be fighting and she's like, mm, would you like to start that over again? And I'm like, oh, dang you. You read that book, didn't you? <laughs> Get away with that. So oh, I love it. I love it. Well, that's that's a c- cool answer. I was wondering what you would say. Uh, and I I want to, we're running, we're kind of over time. Uh, but I wanted to ask a couple of rapid fire questions. These are just for fun. Um, they're one, one answer. I mean, one word answer if you want, or you can, you can, you can, uh, have a long answer if you'd like. Um, but I'm really curious, what is your, what is the first two hours of your day look like? Like what is your specific routine in the morning? That's a good question. I can answer that in, in, in one word, and I'm going to give a plug to one of my buddies. It's called Endura Lab. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's the first two hours of every day. Um, You know, there was a part of me that started with like, is that my time to be, to be mindful? Is that my time to, to do my study? Is that my time to do, you know, my spiritual practice? But I realized that if I'm not awake and and I'm not a morning person, then I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be effective at that. So that, that my, all of my mindful time and my spiritual practice and such all comes either throughout the middle of the day or in the evening. Really? So okay. So you thing. get your workout in first and you're, you're up in Endure Lab at what time? Like six, five? Yeah. What six a.m. Six a.m. <laughs> wow. That's early. That's awesome. Well, um, so do you have, um, do you have a meditation practice where you meditate on the regular or do you, and is your meditation separate from, um, your prayer life or are they commingled or what's your, they're commingled. Um, and, and at times they're separate. And, and it's interesting because one of the things that I've learned is that, and this is why I love running. I mean, cause if you see me and you know me, you look at my body and you go, you're not a runner. Um, cause I, I don't look like a runner. I look like a bit of a linebacker, but the part of running is my, uh, meditative practice because I don't listen to music and I, I let the rhythm of my feet, um, and the rhythm of my breath be that, which is uh, a met- that meditative practice. And boy, I have, I have had some really grand revelations and uh, epiphanies in the midst of, of running long distances by myself. That's awesome. I'm, I'm not a runner. I'm a cyclist. Um, but, uh, the runners that I do know, my business partner, Lee is one of them. He, he calls, he has those same experiences and he calls them his felt sense moments. That's Um, a great where Yeah, I do. I love that, that term. It's, it's, it's a moment where he, uh, things become more clear and like it's even stopped him in his tracks and uh, on runs before. And I've gotten phone calls with him out of breath just after he's had these felt sense moments, which is, which is pretty cool. That's a, that's a, cool. so one more question and that is about your favorite books, um, maybe books that you recommend the most. Um, and it can be in a couple of categories like marriage, parenting, um, you know, just relationships in general. So that's a, that's a tough question for me right now because being in a, finishing up my doctoral program, um, (laughs) my favorite books don't exist because I'm having to do so much reading, but I I would say my, my favorite book on marriage is Tim Keller's book, the meaning of marriage. And the reason why I love it so much is, um, because it's really not about marriage. It's really about becoming a better version of you. And that's why I love the book. I've read a bunch of books on marriage and I, I can't find one that comes anywhere close to it. Um, my favorite book on parenting is um, Parenting with Love and Logic. I love those guys. Um, they, uh, they do such a good job of breaking down parenting to such a, it's just, it's bite-sized, it's consumable, it makes sense, and it's real practical. Yes. And uh, I, I they do a great job. I love that book too. Jennifer and I, um, we we referenced that book constantly raising our kids. Uh, it, they didn't like it much, but, <laughs> but it really was great to give the space for the world to teach them instead of us preaching at them. Yeah. 
Um, yes. So um, yeah. well, I, I said that was the last question, but it's really not. Um, I'm curious. Uh, this is a this is going to be a real pointed question, um, and this is just your opinion. So I'm, I'm cool with the answer. What is the appropriate age to allow your son or daughter onto social media, if at all? Oh man, there's so many caveats to that because <laughs> <laughs> there's some kids that are that can handle the responsibility, and there's other kids who really can't. Um, but I would say with with all kinds of training wheels. Um, you know, 13, somewhere in there, you know, starting in the teen years. But when I say training wheels, I mean, you as a parent have all access codes and you are, you follow them on whatever platform it is. And every post that they have, it it shows up in your, in your feed or however it is, but you have, you have training wheels and like bowling, those little those little gutter things that, you know, keeps the ball from being in the gutter. You've got to have, you've got to have all, all his around it. Yeah. Awesome. That's a great, and I think it's just what you're really referring to is as, as a 13 year old or that early teen stage is if, if they're emotionally yeah. mature, uh, like age appropriately right. mature at 13, if they're a 13 year old, right. that's kind of more at a 10 year old stage, it would be too early, but that that's a great answer. Well, right. Lee, this has been so much fun, man. A great interview. Um, one that I hope uh, will benefit a lot of people a little bit at my expense, but, <laughs> but uh, I think it will really help uh, people understand and normalize the importance of therapy and uh, how it absolutely changed my life and it changed my business. And um, I'm very, very thankful for it. Are, are there any parting words uh, from you, Lee? I would say thank you. Um, I, I appreciate you asking me to do this. This has been, it's always fun to, to spend time with you and it's, it's been fun getting to talk about all these things. So thanks for the, uh, the platform to be able to do this. And I, I would say, you know, anybody out there that is contemplating anything and needing anything, there are people in this world who are designed to walk with you along, walk alongside with you. Please don't suffer in silence. There are people that can help. And there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. There's no, I mean, just show up and ask for help. Great input. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks, as always, for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. And don't forget... Building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit.